Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. We are excited because we have our friend Dan Pfeiffer on as a guest. You know, look, if you listen to this show, I'm sure... At least a few times you have listened to Pod Save America. You know Dan. Uh, you know that he was a senior advisor to President Obama. You've probably read both of his New York Times bestselling books. I believe they were both number one, which honestly I'm I'm envious of, Dan. Uh, he is, like I said, the co-host of Pod Save America. Uh, he also is the author of a newsletter called Message Box, which is an outstanding newsletter about political strategy and what activists should be doing, can be doing. And uh, we're really excited he's here. Dan, thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me, and a belated happy birthday to you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, yes, I am 40, which I will not complain to you about. I, I can complain <laughs> to Ravi about, but I won't complain to you about, which is not... Dan is 30, which is why I said yeah, that. Yeah, that's, so. that's exactly why. Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm quite young, yes. I was Ravi's intern on the Obama campaign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right, Ravi, what's been going on this week? Well, first, happy birthday to you and, and welcome, Dan. We really wanted to get you on this pod precisely at this moment because so much is happening in Congress and at the White House. So last week, Biden laid out a plan for $1.8 trillion in new spending and tax cuts. Uh, that's already on top of the $2.3 trillion infrastructure package that he unveiled in March. And much of what he's proposed is widely popular, and he's hit the road to sell it. But we actually wanted to start not with his message, but what the counter message to this has been so far and what it could be. So Tim Scott, in his State of the Union response, he seemed to fixate particularly on this critique of it as not being bipartisan. And he you know, claimed that Biden's COVID relief was passed on party line vote as if he had no control over that. And so one question I have is just, is this an effective argument, this bipartisanship critique? And and how do you situate that with other critiques, like in general, like the fiscal critiques, for example, of this? Uh, what are you most concerned about, think are most effective? And, and who's their audience for this bipartisanship piece? I think the Tim Scott speech was sort of a microcosm of this larger problem the Republicans have had since Biden was elected, and actually really since the general election started, which they haven't really figured out how to talk about Joe Biden. He doesn't scare their voters in the way that they have had success with other candidates uh, who generally aren't uh, elder white males. They, you know, they can't really figure out how to get a beat on him. His the policies he's proposed are unifying, they might not be unifying in Congress, but unifying in the, most, in the broadest sense. You know, you, like I've been in politics for a long time. It's pretty hard to find policies proposed by a president that have 70 plus approval 
um, which you saw both in the American Rescue Plan, you've seen in the American Jobs Plan, and in elements of the American Families Plan. So he's got these policies that are supported by a lot of traverse. So they're kind of like, you know, if you don't have one message, you have no message, uh, and which is sort of where the Republicans are. What I think they're trying to do with the bipartisanship thing is the same is to rerun the play they ran against Obama in 2009, which is to vote for nothing, support nothing, say it's all whatever happens is on is the fault of the of the president's party because Democrats control Congress now as they did in 2009. The problem, the sort of the fatal flaw in that strategy as we sit here today is you could be very confident in May of 2009 that things were not going to look great in November of 2010. It just it was a financial crisis, there was no vaccine for a housing bubble. Things would get better, but they would certainly not be great because the hole we were digging out of was so big. As we sit here today, you look at what do things look like in November of 2021, or so to the November 2022, you look at you know hundreds of millions of Americans vaccinated, vast majorities of Americans vaccinated, the economy, projections of the economy are quite strong. So you're sort of saying, we did not have anything to do with this success, elect us to power. And I'm not sure that is a super savvy argument. What I'm trying to figure out is what their other options are, because when I've thought about this, it's like the one thing they can control being out of power completely right now is whether or not something is bipartisan. Right. So like if they just refuse to vote for something, then they can actually say, well, it's not it's not bipartisan, but they actually have a lot less that they can control because uh, then in 2009, right, when when we were playing by the the archaic rules more often when they could with 41 you know gum up the works a lot more effectively so i guess what i'm saying is like if i were them i don't know what else i would do so i w- i mean what what would yeah. you do instead i know i think that that i think from a like should you if you were just being entitled let's just put it let's pre- let's presume nihilistic cynicism and you don't actually care about helping your constituents, the country, or any of those things. If yeah, I mean, it, you can almost like stipulate to that at this yeah, point. Well, sadly, if we stipulate yeah. that, then not helping is the right choice, probably. Although another difference between 2010 and 2022 in the Senate, at least, is the Republicans are defending seats. There's been and they were not. There were it was all everything was a referendum on Democrats in 2022. They don't have a lot of good options. They just what they have, they're doing the one thing they can do, which is make it harder to vote in the states that are going to decide the Senate, which is exactly what they're doing in Arizona and Georgia. And so what you know, what Tim Scott says, what the press release is, what they say is so far in the background compared to the very specific strategy they have, which is make it harder to vote and reduce turnout among Democrats, and therefore they will win. And if, you know, when you pair that with – I know we'll probably talk about this later – when you pair that with redistricting where they can make up the seats they need to take the House without ever winning a seat just in pure redistricting, they're – like the messaging is secondary. What's happening is a raw power play to rig democracy in their favor. Yeah, we certainly are going to get to that. And but before we do, to, to zoom out, not just on this series of legislation, but on critiques of Biden generally and Democrats generally, you talk about the need to have one story. Uh, but it seems like the Republicans yet haven't settled on their story, and maybe they don't have to yet because we've got some time be- between now and the next election. Uh, you know, we've seen this par- bipartisanship critique, fiscal critiques you know, that include taxes. We've seen business closures, school closure critiques, a host of cultural issues, 
immigration, race, cancel culture, Dr. Seuss, of these, which concerns you the most? Like when you look at it, you're saying, all right, Democrats need to really pay attention to this because it could really come back to harm us uh, in a year and a half's time. I actually think the Republicans have a consistent story and they've had a consistent story for four decades, which is that change is scary and that America, as you know it, in you very specifically being white people, apparently white Christian people, is your power is being taken away. Like America is changing in ways that are very bad for you and we are here to stop it. Where they are struggling is they can't yet figure out how to fit Biden in that story or his very popular unifying policies in that story. What they are focused entirely on is this message. It's what the cancel culture thing is. It's what Dr. Zeus is. It's what these bigoted anti-trans bills are all about is trying to sell this story, which is really make America great again, right? That is That was like the, the best distillation of the Republican message about trying to make change scary that has happened in, you know, probably in the history of the party. That is what they're communicating to the base because they want to scare people to turn out. And they can't figure out how to make Biden scary, but they they may be able to make change more broadly or change supported by Democrats or progressive change uh, or cultural change more scary. And so that I think Democrats need we cannot ignore that stuff. We can't pretend it's not happening. We can't laugh it off as just like a bunch of Fox News BS. And actually, when you dig into the polling on questions of cancel culture and political correctness, that it has salience that is larger than Democratic elites like to think. So I think that's a great point because, you know, as you know, this show is all about how regular people can have conversations with other regular people about this stuff. And so when people bring up arguments like, oh, you know, questioning Biden's lucidity or, you know, arguments about Biden being captured by the left and all this kind of stuff that is fed to people and then parroted, I think it is wise for people to come back to that with not not meeting that head on and well, no, he's not. And, and instead, like assigning motive and just saying, look, the reason the Republican Party is saying these things to you about Biden is they can't figure out how to go after Biden because they want you to be afraid. They want you to feel like change is scary. You know, everything you just said and say, and the only way to say that Biden is therefore scary is if Biden is a tool of these people they say are so scary. And therefore, they have to tell you this stuff. That's, I mean, it, it, I, I, it's always helpful to assign motive. And I think yeah. that that's a helpful way to do it. I think that's exactly right. The sort of the way President Obama used to say it is you don't play their game, you call out their game. So you just take a step back and explain why they're doing why they're, what they're doing. Why are they trying to demonize these groups or divide these people or bring up these issues that feel very separate and apart from your life? And Democrats sometimes have a tendency to play the game, right? Where it's like Trump says the caravan's coming and then every Democrat in a red state rushes out to say how tough they are on border security. And when you do that, you buy the premise of the argument. You need to explain what's happening. You need the motive and you need to explain who wins from that happening, right? Is that ultimately what Republicans are trying to do is to, like, if you take the biggest step back from a strategic perspective with all of this cultural stuff, what they are trying to do is distract their largely working class, mostly white base from the fact that they are a party that is about to fight to the death to ensure that Amazon, Apple, Exxon maintain the lowest corporate tax rate in history. And they're going to pay for that tax cut when you're not paying attention by cutting your Medicare and cutting your Social Security. And that they have this unsolvable contradiction at the heart of their party. And there's a saying that shows up in political science research that I always like to try to remind people of, which is, 
Economic issues unite Democrats and divide Republicans. Cultural issues unite Republicans and divide Democrats. And so they are using the power they have with their propaganda machine, with Facebook, elsewhere, to move the conversation to cultural grounds. It is incumbent upon us to explain why they're doing that and move it back to economic grounds. But you have to make that message in a compelling way that has good guys and bad guys and who's fighting for whom in order – it can't just be like, we're for, we're for $15 minimum wage. They're not. And if you make less than that – and you don't support us, you are stupid, which is sometimes uh, a way Democrats have approached these issues. Well, the the other way that we get to you are stupid in in error, the other way we get to you are stupid in these conversations is when we're explaining how the Republican Party is trying to dupe you into supporting these tax cuts for corporations at your own expense. We act like, look, I'm here to help you who is not as wise, you know, you're not as wise as I am, and I'm here to save you. And then you play right into the cultural frame that they have for us. So it's 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 a careful thing, like in one-on-one in -on -one conversations, I think to be able to get at that and put both you and the person you're talking to on the same side. This is why messenger is as important as message, right? You need someone who is an accepted messenger within that group. It may not be the host of Pod Save America. It may not be Joe Biden. It may not be Rachel Maddow, but it might be someone in the community. It could be a local organizer. It could be a local, local elected official. Simply just Democratic politicians saying this in, in our sort of information bubble world sometimes can have the opposite effect, right? We've seen research where Obama telling climate deniers that climate is real and like showing them real facts about it actually makes them believe it less. Versus like a weatherman. Yes. Right? And which right. is which is the difference between your mayor and your senator when you think about these things. Because your mayor gets your trash picked up and your and your senator goes on like meet the press and and may or may not say things you agree with but your mayor gets your trash picked up so well dan you know one phenomena of the biden presidency so far has been kind of this paradox of how effective he's been but also how absent he's been from uh, our collective psyche like when i think of both the people in my life who both love or hate trump Biden comes up much, much less than Trump did at this point in his presidency. And people, you know, Jason, you've said this before, you you can't, you struggle to even think of a quote attributable to Biden in his first few months as president. Um, I'm sure you, Dan, could, you, you follow this stuff super closely. Most people I know don't know a whole lot about exactly what he's saying. They have a vague sense of what he's doing. People I know are generally cool with it. Even the people who hate it have a hard time describing what it is they hate. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? I could see it going either way here. I don't know the answer to that. And I think it is definitely good that Joe Biden is not waking up every morning trying to figure out who he's going to fight with on Twitter and talk about all these other things. And even Obama, who was, I think, dominated the media sphere more because he was a very sort of unique and new political figure when he came in. You know, we always sort of viewed it was not his job to narrate the news. Like he did just because something happened, you don't have to speak about it. You want to sort of preserve the presidential voice for moments when it can matter. And Biden has been very sort of in his team have been very sort of savvy about that. I think there is this question about what happens in 2022. And it's too early to draw too many signs from the special election in Texas over the weekend. But we are only going – we have a very uphill battle to hold the House and the Senate. And we are only going to do that if we see near presidential level turnout like we did in 2018. And if politics recedes from the view of people who develop this false sense of comfort about what's happening and they disengage and they don't turn out and they don't organize and they don't show up to swing left meetings and all of that, 
then that is very dangerous. And I think there's this balance between like being in people's face, being annoying, being a divisive figure and keeping politics front of mind. Now, the I think there is one positive to this that is unique to this presidency thus far, which is Democrats have learned a very important lesson about how the media works over the last couple of years, which is after Biden gave his speech, a whole bunch of Democratic PACs and groups, including a this Build Back Better group, which is associated with Biden, were out doing advertising. So yes, Joe Biden is not in the news. He's not in our Twitter feed. But if you were watching you know, a local baseball game or basketball game or your news or something else, you probably you might see an ad with Joe Biden giving unfiltered messaging about his jobs plan or his family's plan. And I think you know, we – people who, who are complete news junkies like us – are like where is Biden? What is there to talk about on on the podcast this week? How you know what are we going to do? But for the average person who is just consuming media, they're getting Biden at a steady but lower dose, and that we'll find out whether that is a, as effective as what we've been through in the, in the last couple of presidencies. If you listen to this podcast, you probably already know uh, what a difference therapy has made in my life. Um, And perhaps you're even tired of hearing about it. Uh, But I'm sorry. I I don't care. Like, it's really important. And I'm going to keep telling you how important it is. And BetterHelp is there to help assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. And it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. You could send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you could schedule weekly video and phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. And anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional, affordable. And in fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com M54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com M54. I grew up in Staten Island, New York, which is a, a big Italian-American community. And we took Italian language classes in middle school and high school, but I never took it seriously back then. And I think that's common of a lot of people. But I think like a lot of people, I have regrets and I want to learn that language. So uh, over the past few months, I've been using Babbel uh, and it is by far my favorite tool to learn a foreign language uh, ever. Uh, What I really like about it is that they use multiple strategies to get you to learn and they make it really fun. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MAJORITY54 for an extra three months free. Babbel, language for life. So as we head to 2022, we have a lot of obstacles in front of us. We have retirements, uh, which we see, we see a lot of people like Tim Ryan, Charlie Crist, Sherry Bustos in tough to keep seats who've been re- who are announcing that they're not going to run again for various reasons, uh, often because they're running for higher office. Uh, we have report- reapportionment from the census, where it looks like Democratic controlled states are going to lose a few seats. And then we have redistricting, uh, where we're going to lose seats because we uh, we didn't make the kind of progress we needed 
in the last election in state houses. You put that on top of uh, these enthusiasm trends that you're seeing and just historical numbers that presidents tend to see in midterm elections. I hesitate to ask this of you, Dan, because I think you don't necessarily classify yourself as an optimist. Uh, so maybe you're going to deliver the, the doom and gloom here. But what's our way through this? Well, here, let me give you the optimistic case, which will be very uncomfortable for me personally, but I can do it, which is, you know, you're looking at a world, you know, a million things can change from now and then. But you have every reason to expect that America is going to be in sort of an economic and social renaissance in November of 2020. 22. People are going to be out and about. The economy is going to be humming. People are going to be working. Likely, you know, some measure of real boost in the economy from the American Jobs Act, American Families Act. You know, sort of, sort of, you know, rocket fuel in an already soaring economy, and that's all very positive. From a turnout perspective, it's very possible that because of shifts in sort of the electoral coalitions, because Democrats have become more of a suburban party, which has some challenges to it, but one of the potential upsides to it is we probably have less of a drop-off problem than we used to, the sort of people who got involved in politics. And, and you know, you had a bunch of regular moderate Republican voters who voted for Mitt Romney in 2012, who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, or a third-party candidate, and then Democratic candidate in 18, Biden in 20. And these are very typically every election voters. And so Republicans may have a bigger drop-off. And then we just you just don't know what the Republican Party turnout looks like without Trump on the ballot, and you you know it was not good in 2012. It was not good in 18. It was very good in 2016, 2020, and it's very possible Trump has an Obama-like effect on turnout in his party. So that would be the optimistic case. Um, and before you move off of that, I just have one question for you on that. How would you compare what happened in Georgia, which I think would confirm the optimistic take, right? Uh, you could count it almost like an off-cycle election, although it was very close to the previous one. It was connected to it. It was a, it was a runoff, obviously. Th how would you compare that, where we also saw decreased turnout amongst Trump supporters? So th th that state seems to give evidence for the optimistic take, but then you compare that to, to Dallas, where it seems to go the other way. How would you compare those two? I, I think both of them are single data points that don't tell us a ton. Because it, you know, that Georgia election was, you know, whatever it was, six weeks after the presidential election. We were in the middle. The president was pouting. He was attacking every Republican in the state for helping him for not helping him steal the election. He was telling people their votes didn't count. And, you know, we still barely won those seats. It is possible that it tells us something about what will happen, but it's also possible that it is in and of itself a black swan event. Same thing in the, you know, no one really campaigned or invested money in the in the Texas special. It's probably a wise decision, as I mentioned earlier, but we don't we don't really the fact is we don't really know. You were about to give a pessimistic take. I'm not sure if you've actually delivered it, because I've heard well, some pessimism here already, but yeah, if you, I mean, if you want to go further. I don't think it's a I don't want it to be a pessimistic take because you know, pessimism serves no purpose. Um, it's better to be um, hopeful and disappointed than um, pessimistic and self-satisfied when the when the wrong outcome happens. But I think we need to be fully clear-eyed as a party about the challenges before us. The you know this is the narrowest House majority in history, I believe, or close to recent history. Republicans can steal, according to the folks at the National Redistricting Democratic Redistricting Committee, up to twelve seats from redistricting alone. So we would walk in twelve seats down before anything happened. To hold on to the Senate, we have to reelect 
uh, Senator Warnock and Senator Kelly in Arizona and Georgia, or pick up one of Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. You know, Wisconsin is the close is other is always super close. I mean, even in 2018, Tony Evers barely won, like barely, barely won against Scott Walker in like his fifth election in a few years. So there's a warning signs there. Pennsylvania and Hard state. We didn't win Michigan. We didn't win North Carolina. We didn't win Florida. And yes, we won Georgia and yes, we won Arizona, but we barely won them. And it's going to be harder to vote in that election, in the 2022 election, than it was in 2020. And we saw a similar drop off in battleground states that put in place voter suppression measures between 08 and 12. A big difference in what happened in. Uh, in our margins in Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, and North Carolina between 08 and 12 were because of the imposition of voter ID and the cutting back of early voting. And so it is a most definitely an uphill climb. And so what do you do with that information? Just like hide under your desk for the next 18 months? Or do you get to work and start thinking ab- about what kind of organizing can we do now? What kind of investment can we do now? How do we ensure that our candidates don't just have all the money in the world at the end, but they have a steady, sustained source of funding? And perhaps more importantly than anything else is we have sitting before us with the For the People Act an opportunity to solve some of those problems, to roll back some of those voter suppression efforts, to deal with the the gerrymandering problem. And like an immediate place to focus our energy is trying to get the Senate to pass that bill and ensure that we have the best chance possible to have the be- the most democratic election possible, small d, and potentially hold on to Congress and continue to putting in place our agenda for the last two years of Biden's first term. Your newsletter is awesome. It's the only political messaging newsletter I read. And this week you talked about the filibuster, which is the, as our listeners know, because we talk about it every week, the filibuster is the obstacle, is one obstacle to passing the For the People Act. We both have to get 50 votes for it, which we're, I think we're at 49 right now for some version of it, and then get those same people to either make an exception to the filibuster or reform it. There's obviously one name that looms large here. Uh, I would both love to hear your take, which in your newsletter, it seems like you're you're still waiting to find some hope here um, in the in the short term uh, or any glimmers of hope here that that we're moving forward on this thing. But you you make a case that there's another set of issues that might be the key to breaking the filibuster. It is hard to make to be super optimistic about the filibuster because Joe Manchin, every time he's asked, makes it very clear that he is not going to get rid of it. Now, I was around in the White House in 2013 when every Democratic senator said they were not going to eliminate the filibuster for judicial nominees and presidential appointments up until the moment that Mitch McConnell decided that Barack Obama, who had just been reelected by a very large margin, would not be able to have a labor secretary, an EPA administrator, or any judges on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, the second most, the second highest court in the land. And then a majority of, of Democratic senators voted for it. Now, what the one of the two senators who did not was Joe Manchin. So there, you know, we this remains an obstacle. But I think we have not, Republicans have not actually filibustered anything of consequence yet. We haven't even tested the case. Like we all know they're going to obstruct everything that matters, but we haven't made them do it. For in part because there is no filibuster for appointments, and so Biden's been getting the Senate's been confirming Biden's cabinet. There, you can get around the filibuster on budget bills like the rescue 
act and the rescue plan and the jobs plan. They're doing that. That's the right thing to do. But we have not forced them to actually block something. And I, you know, we have all sort of assumed that voting rights would be the issue that would force the confrontation on the filibuster. I think the For the People Act is the most important piece of legislation in several generations. It is, I think, is as consequential to anything since the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Voting Rights Act in the '60s. And if Democrats do not, if this bill does not become law in some form, this will be a black mark on our party and everyone involved because we miss a historic opportunity at a, I think, a critical juncture for the health of our democracy. But I have also concluded that it may be the worst issue to be the one to have the filibuster fight over because it is one that is so specifically tied to the political success of one party over the other, even if it is done so for the right reason because we think we benefit from a healthy democracy and they think they benefit from a rigged democracy, it still can be seen as a power grab. And ultimately, what you need is not just Manchin. It's also Kristen Sinema and Mark Kelly and a bunch of other senators who are pretty wishy-washy on the Phillips and Buster to be able to go home and explain to their constituents why they changed their mind. And I think the best issue to have that fight over is background checks for guns, the universal background check bill. And for the following reasons, one has tremendous bipartisan support in the country. We have not passed any laws of consequence in nearly two decades on gun safety. It was most fa- probably the most famous use of the filibuster of the last decade for congressional nerds was when a Republican-led filibuster blocked the background legislation that came after the shooting in Newtown, uh, one of the most tragic uh, events in America in recent American life. And so, and the chief sponsor of that filibustered background check bill, Joe Manchin. So you have a bill that addresses an obvious urgent crisis that cannot become law without getting rid of the filibuster. And so if we're going to have the fight, and we may lose the fight, be very clear, Joe Manchin could just decide he cares more about this arcane, stupid Senate rule than doing the things he says he supports. And if he does that, then so be it. But if we're going to have the fight, I think we should have it on gun safety. And I think it's harder to find a more righteous and urgent issue than gun safety to have a debate about whether Congress can actually do popular bipartisan things that save lives. Well, you know, what's also really interesting about it is, is that it would ultimately, by a slim amount, be a bipartisan vote once you got past, not on the filibuster, I'm sure. Uh, I I can't see Toomey, for instance, voting to reform the filibuster, but you only need the 50. And then after that, then you've satisfied, to some extent, Manchin's criteria, because uh, you're going to have Toomey and I assume like Murkowski or Collins or somebody like that vote with you. So that's, yeah. And I think that's the really one thing here point. is we got to let Manchin try. Manchin really believe he, he and Toomey are out trying to find bipartisan votes for this and we should let him try. He's got to try and fail before we have any shot, even as long as it is to get him to change his mind. And we have that we have not the question is not ripe yet for that because there there hasn't been obstruction and Manchin hasn't had the opportunity to fail, as we expect he would, at generating bipartisan support for either guns or voting rights. Simply Safe is an award-winning home security system. I mean th- 
Did you even know that they gave out awards for home security systems? I did not know that, but I am comforted knowing that the one I use got those awards. So you know it's engineered with the latest technology you want to keep your family safe, but what really sets Simply Safe apart is its people, highly trained security experts who are always there for you when you need them most. These are people who truly care about keeping you safe. When an alarm goes off, a person who cares is there for you with a phone call to make sure you're okay. Even if you're just having a problem setting up your system, a person who cares is there for you with a friendly chat and a quick resolution. The bottom line is when you need them most, Simply Safe is there 24 7 with people who care and experts trained to not only keep you safe, but to make you feel safe. It's one of the many reasons that U.S. News recently called Simply Safe the best home security of 2021. To learn more about how Simply Safe can help protect you and your family, visit simplysafe.com/majority54 today to customize your system and get a free security camera. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. That's simplysafe.com/majority54. You know, this this past year and a half has been difficult for a lot of our listeners, and I know that a lot of people lost their jobs or just were earning less income than they're used to or spending more. So a lot of people, I think, are carrying a lot more debt than they they otherwise would be. And our sponsor, Upstart, is there to help you. So this is a service that allows you to consolidate your debt in a really fast process. And Upstart can help get you out of a hole. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple, fixed monthly payment. Unlike other lenders, Upstart looks at more than just your credit score, like your income and employment history. This means they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash majority54. That's upstart.com slash majority54. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. So go to upstart.com slash majority54. Well, let's move on to another segment we call This Week in Misinformation. And we're going to come back to this, you know, this topic we've now talked about a lot, which is the lie that the election was stolen. We thought we'd have this behind us a long time ago, but it just keeps coming back. Uh, And Monday morning, Trump issued a statement from a Save America uh, PAC proclaiming that the presidential election, quote, will be from this day forth be known as the big lie. Uh, So he's trying to do what he did with fake news, which is reappropriate something that's a critique of him uh, and make it an offensive argument. And uh, a new CNN poll released Friday found that six months after the election, 70 percent of Republican voters believe Trump's false claims that Biden had not legitimately won the presidency. Uh, And obviously, local GOP officials across the country, you know, they're actually turning his lie into legislation um, and Uh, working to steal the vote next time. Uh, And then the few brave souls within the GOP speaking up against this are facing backlash. Uh, Liz Cheney, obviously, is is most prominently featured here. She tweeted uh, her disapproval of Trump, saying that the election was not stolen. uh, And now she's facing a vote. Uh, She's the third ranking, I think, member of the House. And both Trump and the the House Whip have supported a replacement for her, Elise Stefanik, and McCarthy was caught on a hot mic, basically throwing her under the bus. Is this a big deal? Like, what what do what should we as Democrats be making of all of this? 
I don't think we as Democrats have the power to convince Republicans not to believe lies they have partisan ideological motivation to believe. Right? So Democrats have very, very limited ability to convince people that Barack Obama was born in the United States. They have a like there is an there is a, there's a lot of you know the concept of motivated reasoning is really at play here in getting people to answer these questions. What should we make it? We should make it. We should be very concerned for the health of our democracy because if you have if you have a two party system and one of those parties gets in the loony bin and drives off the ledge, that is not good. That is a huge problem, and it should be incentive for us to double down and reinvest and re and focus on organizing everything we can to beat these people because the only language they understand is brute political force. They have moved to adopt this big lie because they're afraid of Trump's brute political force. And if we can beat them and upend expectations by holding on to the House and picking up Senate seats in 2022, that is that is a language they understand. They tried this and it failed. And then you would hope for at least the opportunity for there to be some reckoning within the party, some shift in strategy to recognize that they cannot win by adopting Trumpism, sort of the idea writ large. Let's talk about something you just said for a second, because I think a lot of people listening to this they're thinking, but if they purge these reasonable people from their party, isn't that great for us? Because like you said, it's not good in a two-party system if one party goes crazy and goes off the ledge. And a lot of people listening right now are going, well, wouldn't that just mean more for us, right? Like if, if they get up from the dinner table and leave, can't we just scrape food off their plate? I know the answer is no, but can you unpack that and explain why? I would say in the short term, I don't really care that much about whether Liz Cheney hangs around. It does like one reasonable Republican and it, the fact that I, I just described a Cheney who prior to this one moment in time was one of the trollest, most outrageous House Republicans. Uh, it's just she stayed as crazy as she was in 2014 and the party just got crazier. Like that doesn't really matter that much. I mean, the reason you need a healthy, you need a Republican party that is not insane is we have a system that's set up on compromise. And if compromise is not possible, you can't do things like save the planet from climate change or stop people from you know, dying of gun violence or all these other things that are happening out there. But I think the party is not going to change from the inside. Like there was a moment for that. You know, Mitch McConnell is theoretically the most powerful Republican in the country, not named Trump. And he hates Trump. He gave a speech against Trump and he tried and no one followed him. And so now he's just he decided he's going to sort of abide by Trumpism without commenting on it. The best way to understand how any politician makes a decision is to try to understand their incentive structure. What is in their political incentive? Every Republican's concluded that being with Trump is the best thing for them. And if we had had the election we thought we were going to have based on the polls and we had picked up 55, you know, we got into 55 Senate seats. You know, Biden had won 400 electoral votes. You know, we got in Texas and Ohio, and we'd won all the state legislatures, and we'd expanded our House majority. Then Republicans might have concluded being with Trump is bad politics. So what what is what is, what is good politics in having that conversation? And we did not. We thought we were going to have. We thought we were going to win 2016 and send that message. We thought we were going to win in 2020 and send that message. And 2022 is our next option. But they have to. We have to show them by winning that their strategy doesn't work. And we're not going to convince them to do something because it's the right thing to do or the moral thing to do or the patriotic thing to do. They're going to do what they think is in their political interest. And they have concluded very clearly, and I'm not sure that they are necessarily wrong, given how rigged our democracy is in favor of the white portions of the electorate that vote predominantly Republican, that this is is the, I'm not sure that is the wrong calculation on their part. 
and and to go even further down this well for a moment, what I think a lot of people don't realize when they think about politics the way that I just described, right? When they think about it as it's zero sum and whatever the Republicans lose, we gain, is that you know most of of politics in this country, uh, partisan politics is not partisan politics in the sense of Democrats versus Republicans and vice versa. It's Democrats versus Democrats and Republicans versus Republicans, which is to say you got to win the division before you can try to win the pennant. And and so all going back to the incentive structure, whether you're talking about state representatives who want to be state senators or members of Congress who want to be U.S. senators, they are all looking around at the at their fellow R's or D's in their delegation and going, I can't let there be any daylight on my left or on my right, because if if I do, then I'm never going to get to the general election. So even in swing states where you would think that you'd have an incentive structure to, you know, really like buck Trump, you don't. And that's actually why somebody like Liz Cheney uh, is is so unique, because you know, you win the Republican primary in Wyoming, you're you're the member of Congress, right? So, so that's why we're we're just not used to seeing that at all, and why it's ne- it's you're not going to get to a point where it happens more and more often. Well, okay, let's get some quick takes because uh, we're running out of time, but I can't let you go without asking you about two things that just happened over the past twenty four hours. Facebook just ruled right before we started recording that Trump. The Facebook Council of Advisors or whatever that Trump that the ban of Trump on Facebook can go forward, but it needs to have an end date at some point. That news is paired, probably not coincidentally, with the fact that Trump has unveiled a new website. Maybe this is totally on brand with Trump, but it appears that it's just Trump having a feed and nobody else can have a feed. It's just basically his feed, and other people can share his feed, but you can't comment on it or have your own feed. <laughs> so what's going on here? The it's just a website. Like he basically he rolled out a 2005 blog as his communications platform. The Yahoo's at Fox News wrote it up as if he had reinvented Facebook. Um, and it's it's just a website. There's nothing there. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't make it. It's not going to make it easier or to, for him to get his message out or be a more dominant person. The Facebook decision is interesting because. Basically, Facebook created this quote-unquote independent oversight board that was supposed to make these tough decisions as a way for Mark Zuckerberg and everyone to punt the hot potato to someone else. This oversight board, which has done almost nothing in its year or two of existence, just punted it right back to Facebook and said, we'll maintain the ban. But the the way you did the ban, ban violated your own rules and you have six months to figure it out. So we're, gonna, we're just going to be right back at this in six months. I think the Trump himself being on Facebook is a slight – like it's definitely better that he's not on it. Um, But I just want to read to you the 10 top performing link posts on Facebook over the last 24 hours, which is why it doesn't really matter that much whether Trump is on there. Number one, Ben Shapiro. Number two, Ben Shapiro. Number three, Ben Shapiro. Number four, Fox News. Number five, Four America. I don't know what that is, but I think I have a pretty good idea. Number six, Dan (laughs) Bongino. Number seven, Sean Hannity. Number eight, Dan Bongino. Number nine, Fox News. And coming in 10th, the Rachel Maddow show. Oh, good so for even you, if, Rachel. Yes. Even yeah. if Trump is not on the platform, it is a cesspool of Trumpism. And so his message is being pumped. It's actually more, probably more effective for him to have all these independent, disaggregated, distributed influencers pushing that message out than just he himself having. A Facebook page. I don't like. We, it's definitely better. He's not on there. They should adhere to the rules. He violated all of the rules. But 
whether he is on or off is secondary to the larger problem that Facebook presents for Democrats and democracy writ large. As we round the corner here, we have this uh, final segment we call a quarantine corner, where we just talk about something outside of politics that's happening in our lives. Jason, you turned 40 yesterday, and you played your first organized baseball game uh, in a little while. Like a couple decades. <laughs> Tell us about it. The, the Instagram content looked great. It looks like you got a hit. Yeah, it was amazing. I'm not going to go on and on about it, because I've already done that on social media. But what I will say is, is that um, the, the opportunity to dive headfirst into second base while executing a straight steal with your seven-year-old watching on your 40th birthday special life moment man that was that was pretty also baseball is just as beautiful as it was two decades ago when i when i played it it was so much fun well i hope it felt good you know i just from my cursory look at social media you, you were getting a lot of love out there so i hope it just reminded you how many people appreciate you out there which is good because I'm super sore and bruised today and I have another game tonight. So after this, I will be icing everything. <laughs> well, that's awesome, man. I'll be really quick. I, you know, I was away for a while in Costa Rica. I got back to New York and I find it really hard to concentrate in New York on deeper projects. And so I read this book uh, called Deep Work by Cal Newport. It's like a few years old. It's really, really awesome. And it just gives you a really strong case for how and when you should disconnect and focus on deeper projects and not look at social media, not look at your phone and just what kind of mindset you should bring. Uh, and it's incredible and it, and it's good to pair with the deep work. Cause like, I read it almost as like a guide to how I should structure my day. I, I can't recommend it enough. Solid, solid, solid recommendation again from Robbie. Dan, I'm guessing this might have to do with a six week old. Yes, our quarantine project is our six-week-old son, uh, Jack Pfeiffer, who uh, is, you know, who has been truly amazing. It is, I would like, I would like to have come on here and been like, "This is the book I'm reading. This is the TV show I'm watching. This is the, the cooking. You know, this is the sourdough starter I made." But none of that is true. I am. Uh, we have a six-week-old and a daughter who's going to turn three in two weeks uh, in quarantine uh, whole, while, try, while both trying to, to work from home has been quite an adventure, but it has been, uh, I didn't really know what to expect with two kids. I didn't really know what to expect with one kid, but you know, for all of the lack of sleep and the challenges that come with infants in your house, watching my daughter just absolutely embrace Sometimes, perhaps a little too enthusiastically, her role as big sister has been a truly, truly uh, wonderful thing. Dan, we have a segment uh, that we call Grab an Oar, uh, as you know, and we end the show with an opportunity for action, for something out there that that people can do. Uh, When we have a guest like yourself, we like to throw it to them to let them, you know, uh, ride their hobby horse about what it is they think people should be doing. Uh, In this one, I want to make sure that you uh, plug your newsletter and your books, because I do think they're excellent resources for people. So do that. But then if you have anything in addition to that that you think people should be doing right now, feel free to lay it on them. Yes, I will start with the annoying self-promotional self-aggrandizing part, which is I've written two books, one, Yes, We Still Can, and the other one, Untrumping America. Yes, We Still Can is about how they ended up in politics, about working for Obama. It's really about how we ended up in this moment where Donald Trump could get elected in 2016. And Untrumping America is how is what we do now, both how we defeated Trump in 2020, but how we defeat Trumpism 
going forward? Like how we solve this problem? And it has a lot of step by step actions, not for you know, Democratic politicians, candidates, but also activists. And every chapter has a what you can do section, which is partially why I started my newsletter, The Message Box, which you can subscribe at messagebox.substack.com, which is really an idea I've had for a long time, which is Democrats have this giant army of activists. And we, when we get close to an election, we say, go knock doors, go make these phone calls, go send these texts. But we don't recognize the fact that each and every one of them has, on average, a network of at least a couple hundred people in their phone contacts, their Facebook friends, their Instagram friends, their Twitter followers. And we never tell them, we never give them the same sort of message advice that we give candidates. So I started a newsletter, which is a which is sort of a version of the memos I used to write for President Obama and other politicians I work for for activists. Here, you know, here is a you know, an analysis of what's happening and here's what you can do about it with uh, as often as I possibly can, some specific messages and ideas for what you can share on social or you can say to your MAGA uncle or your Trump curious aunt or your apolitical dentist or any of those things. So stop self-promotion part, start other part is, you know, as I said earlier, I believe the For the People Act in dealing with voting rights is the single most important thing we can do. This is a test for our generation of politicians and political activists. If you go to votesofamerica.com, you can sign up uh, for a campaign we have called HR1 or We're Fucked. You can call your, your senators. You can find other opportunities to engage to help increase the urgency for this bill. Because one thing we know, which is it has broad support, but Republican voters are much more passionate about stopping people from voting than Democratic voters are about making it easier to vote. So we have to explain to the people in our networks and our lives why this is such an urgent cause. And if we want to have any hope of getting senators to do the right thing, we got to start there. So you can do that at votesafeamerica.com. Extremely well done. Thank you very much. Uh, as we close out here, I want to remind everybody that uh, you know in the next couple of weeks, we will get back to answering your voicemails. You can leave us one at 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. For social, I'm at Jason Cantor on Instagram and Twitter. Lots of adorable baseball content there, you know, father-son stuff. Uh, Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Lots of really good New York stuff. Like if you're, you know, one of our many listeners in the middle of the country and you just want to feel like you're on a travel show seeing New York, you know, that's where you go. And Dan is at Dan Pfeiffer on Twitter and Pfeiffer3342 on Instagram. Dan, what what will they see on your social media? Well, you will see a combination on Twitter, a combination of political tweets and uh, sports tweets, especially as the NBA playoffs ramp up with the uh, currently number one seeded Philadelphia 76ers, uh, which is my my team. And Instagram is mostly, honestly, pictures of my kids. So whether that's it, you're into that or not, you know, that, that's where you, that's what you would find there. Our people like pictures of kids. They like it a lot. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Dan, you're a very smart person, and I always enjoy talking to you, and I'm glad that these other people got to hear it. So thanks, man. Well, thanks for having me. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas 
dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.